0: Hello and welcome to the Lebanese Politics Podcast. My name is Benjamin Redd and we have got a great show for you guys today. In just a little bit, we are going to be joined by Lydia Aswad. Uh, Many of you know that name. She is a researcher and economist uh, and she's done a lot of work on inequality in Lebanon. And so we're going to be sort of unpacking that and going through that uh, a little bit later. Uh, But first, I am joined as always by Nizar Hassan and Timur Asari. Hey guys, how's it going?
1: No, it's fine. I mean, you know, just another week of uh, everything feeling like it's falling apart and then the wheels are coming off. How about you, Nizar?
2: Yeah, yeah same. <laughs> I love the,
1: <laughs> the motivation there. <laughs> you seem like you're doing really well, my friend.
0: <laughs> I uh, We did have a lot of stuff go on this week and, and, a lot of really important th- developments that we that we need to uh, go through uh, in our recap of the week. I mean, I mean, first off, just keeping in touch with everything going on became a little bit more difficult this week because you know we're we're still under some sort of lockdown for COVID nineteen, but electricity really started to fail. The state electricity really started to fail this week, and so a lot of us saw major power cuts, even here in Beirut. You no, know, in in my building, for instance, uh, we do have a backup generator, uh, which is pretty common amongst a lot of uh, people in Beirut. But even that sometimes would go out, uh, and so we were left for some small stretches of time without any electricity. And I know for other people, it was uh, much worse, and especially people who don't have access to the generators. You know, they were just sitting in darkness for much longer than, than they normally do, even here in Beirut, which usually gets something like 21 hours of electricity. That's probably, I, I don't, I, I didn't count the hours, but it seemed as though we we're getting something, you know, more like 12 hours. And apparently this was due to uh, a lack of fuel. Uh, and there, were, there apparently, according to an EDL statement that came out on Thursday, uh, there was some issue with processing the payments for the fuel, um, which they said, oh, no, no, this is this is being taken care of. Apparently, Ghazi uh, Wezni on Friday signed some documents that should allow for fuel ships to come and dock and offload their fuel. Uh, so that the electricity grid can start to get fed again. Now, EDL didn't give any sort of timeline as to when the electricity situation is going to get better, but hopefully over the next few days things will start to sort of return to normal. But I think in the long term we're still facing. I mean, the electricity sector it has been problematic ever since you know the Civil War essentially, and it's never truly been fixed. And so right now, if we're looking forward, you know, what's going to happen over the next week? Okay, maybe things are going to get a bit better. But if we're looking a little bit further out, uh, you know, the next few months, something like that, then a lot of other factors are going to come into play that really, really look bad for electricity service provision uh, in the country. Uh, we, we, have, we have several issues coming up, not just the, the fuel thing. The fuel thing is a major thing. Lebanon still doesn't know where it's going to be getting fuel from, although there was an agreement with Iraq, uh, which is problematic for other reasons, quality of fuel, et cetera, how that fuel would be refined or would be uh, made usable for uh, Lebanon's power system. So there's the fuel issue, but also uh, just getting equipment for maintenance and operations. Lebanon's grid is pretty rickety. And so, whenever you have any sort of issue that requires maintenance, well, you have to buy parts for that. You need dollars in order to do that, oftentimes. Uh, and so, once again, we re- we we see uh, the financial crisis has impacted the electricity sector as well in a in a very very bad way, leading to what we see as harder to get fuel, harder to get spare parts uh, or, or or other parts to maintain the electrical network, um, and and then also. Uh, You you can add on to these factors, other things like the uh, August 4th Beirut port explosion, which was right next to the BDL building and really, really heavily damaged that that building. And not only that, it wiped out, you know, the EDL used to have this central control room there where they could, you know, flip switches and direct things on the uh, direct electricity across the grid. That is no longer there that the EDL has has no capacity to do that anymore so that is an issue as well and and then we also just have the issue of the expiring contracts you know so for fuel we had the Sonatrack contract that ended at the end of last year and, and then we uh, just a few weeks ago had the contract with Prime South which operates uh, the Mar and Zahrani plants uh, that expired the company said that they'll keep going for a bit but we I mean that's all very tentative we don't know what's going to go on with that and then in September, the, uh, the power barges contract is up. And then at the end of the year, we have the contracts are up with the distribution service providers as well. And so, uh, I, I mean, given the failure of authorities to launch a tender process just for the fuel, you know, you, you look at all of these other contracts coming up and you think, oh my God, how are they going to get things together? by the time these other contracts expire in order to ensure that electricity you know uh, that the electrical system continues to function at at all
1: right and and this this week we heard that uh, there there will be now a new uh, sort of tender public tender held for the import of fuel uh, sometime in april but it's it's really you know funny and and sort of sad that lebanon is a, is a country where people uh, seem to know, you know, when the next fuel barge is coming in, and this is something that makes like, you know, nightly news headlines, and it's sort of ridiculous, and and just, you know, a sign of, you know, how basically how you know people's lives are completely upended, not only by the electricity cuts themselves, but then by the stress of this whole issue of, oh God, are we going to have the fuel barge coming in, and when, and you know, when will that arrive, and how many days will it take to offload the fuel barge, and it's just these things that you know really should be happening behind the scenes and in the back end of the state, but but really come to the fore in this country because nothing seems to work properly and, and nothing seems to be going in the direction it should be going. And and one of those things is, is sadly, is the, the country's, you know, the situation with coronavirus and new cases. We are now pretty much two months into a lockdown, into some kind of lockdown in Lebanon. And over a month of that has been this very hard lockdown where most businesses are closed where shops are closed where you for a long time you know had to order from the supermarket you couldn't even go to the supermarket and and despite having you know being in lockdown for almost 2 months we are now seeing numbers rising again. Uh, we, are, we are seeing, you know, cases steadily above 3,000, whereas last week they were sort of around the 2,000, 2,500 mark. We've seen uh, deaths actually increase as well. So new cases have, are up almost 20% in the last week, and deaths, I think, is around 5 or 6%. And this is all happening as the country is in the process of reopening uh, you know, next week we are supposed to see shops and, and malls reopen to, to customers. And this morning, the head of Rafiq Hariri University Hospital, Firas Abdiad, warned about this and was saying, you know, there is a perception in, in Lebanon that the COVID situation has gotten better. That is not true. Things are getting much worse and we're going towards reopening. And and as that is happening, we have the vaccinations still you know, taking place at an extremely slow rate. We've had, I think, 40,000 vaccines, give or take, uh, given out in the, in the past two weeks. And and we still have, I think, under 10% of the main priority group, the 1A group, which is elderly, uh, the elderly and healthcare workers who have actually received the vaccine. The number of vaccines is ramping up slightly. So we we got 40K over this weekend, uh, where we're recording the podcasts that are supposed to be given to people uh, next week, um, and so we'll we'll get to maybe a total number of eighty thousand vaccines given out. But at the current rate we're we're going at, AUB uh, this week released a report saying that we would only get to herd immunity in twenty twenty five. And I don't know about you guys, but if it takes to twenty twenty five, I mean, my God, <laughs> you know, there, there's sort of, <laughs> there's sort of uh, that's that's just a horrifying, horrifying thought. And so we do expect the rate to increase a little bit, but the problem is that we're nowhere near uh, be, you know being in a position where the amount of vaccines is is actually going to reduce the number of total cases and the number of total cases is rising and we're reopening the country so it honestly seems like we're going to a really bad place
0: yeah absolutely and this this is compounded as well by the scandal that broke out this this past week. So we've had 2 weeks so far of the vaccination campaign. The first week everything seemed to be going great. There was a lot of optimism. Uh we had you know a whole lot of positive stories come out about okay, the authorities, the people who are in charge of this are are doing things right. They're ramping up the capacity. They've come up with this distribution plan, all of this stuff. There's not going to be any WASTA involved in this whatsoever. And then this week happened And all of that went away. Right. And uh, Taymor, you
1: actually
0: broke this story on Tuesday morning. Right. So do you want to tell us what happened?
1: Right. So Tuesday morning, I wake up to a text from a source saying uh, I've heard that MPs are going to parliament to get vaccinated. And so I called the Secretary General of Parliament, Adnan Daher, and I'm like, listen, our MP is getting vaccinated at Parliament today. And he says, yes, I mean, we're, uh, you know, it's kind of happening only for those above 75, but yeah, uh, it is happening. And so I'm like, okay, well, this seems like it's, it's something of public interest. Um, and so I, I tweeted it out. And then within 10 minutes of the tweet, the World Bank uh, regional head, Saroj Kumar Jha, had commented on the tweet saying that this would be a violation of the national plan. He urged everybody to stay in line. And then shortly afterwards, he posted another tweet saying, you know, clarifying that if this is confirmed, they could suspend financing of the of the vaccinations and of Lebanon's COVID nineteen response. The World Bank has you know has agreed to provide Lebanon with a thirty four million dollar loan uh, that's repurposed from a previous loan for the COVID nineteen response and for vaccination. They're funding vaccinations for over two million people in the country. And so they then threatened to suspend the financing. They, you know, The, the regional head came out here and said, listen, if, if this is confirmed, we might suspend that financing. Um, and then sort of the story kept unfolding. We got a report from local media that people actually had been vaccinated. And then we find out that, hey, this, this, this whole thing about it being people above 75 and within this priority category doesn't seem to be actually true because it turns out that about half the people who got the vaccine were under 75. And that includes Elil Fizli, the deputy head of parliament, uh, people like Razi Zaiter, who, who Lebanese people will know from other scandals, such as the scandal involving uh, Swiss arms, which he seemed to distribute among his bodyguards. Um, and that that led to a suspension of a Swiss arms sale to Lebanon. You'll also know Ghazi Zaiter from the Beirut port blast investigation, where he was one of the MPs who uh, managed to get rid of Fadi Sawan by by filing that uh, that motion to dismiss Sawan. Ghazi Zaiter, of course, there was a suspect. And there's there's a number of other MPs who also got it who were under 75 and parliamentary staff, six of them, uh, who uh, one of them was uh, actually 65 years old. And then you know we, we went from this uh, this period of sort of okay learning the names of the MPs and those involved and the World Bank sort of lashing out, uh, then then to the question of okay what happens now? Will we see an apology? Will we see you know kind of uh, any kind of regret? And the answer, of course, was no. Uh, Fizzly uh, then proceeded to go into a meltdown. And he he did this sort of uh, seemingly racist, uh, you know, uh, repeatedly saying, uh, you know, mispronouncing Saroj Jha's name as Faruj, which means rotisserie chicken or marroosh which is kind of like an, a nonsense word. Um, and he did this over and over again on seemingly on purpose. He did it with me in an interview, then on TV several times. Uh, Fizzly then proceeded to go on several shows and, and, you know, staunchly defend the vaccination of MPs saying, it was because of all of their hard work um, and, and really uh, had had a complete meltdown across several, you know, across social media platforms and, and the media. Um, and then it sort of dies down. Um, and uh, until we hear from the health minister uh, more than 24 hours later, and he basically goes on Télévibon and says, no, nothing wrong here. It's no big deal. Uh, and in fact, I did this out of appreciation, out of appreciation for MPs who spent seven days passing an emergency uh, law for, you know, for to, to allow for vaccinations in the country. And, and so that that, you know, sort of was was in a way the, the, the cherry, the cherry on the pie uh, with, with basically no kind of regret. From anyone in authority, really, um, and 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 that's sort of where we are today. We haven't heard from the World Bank yet, or really members of the international community uh, who who condemned this, except for a generic statement that was shared to several of their Twitter accounts, where they basically said, you know, we we're we're, we're helping with the vaccination drive, but we expect people not to skip the line. Um, and so it seems that that that's kind of where it's ending. And and in a way, it seems like they're going to get away with this. And I, I just had a little bit of background here because, you know, it was sort of surprising to me uh, to see uh, the regional head of the World Bank, uh, you know, very quickly within within 10 minutes of me posting the tweet coming out and, you know, making some some big statements here, threatening to suspend financing. And so apparently, you know, I had some discussions uh, with various people involved. And so apparently the, the background here is that the, the international community, you know, the World Bank and donor nations are in very tense discussions with Lebanon, with Lebanese officials over aid distribution. And the idea here is basically that they are fed up with financing the Lebanese political system indirectly by giving money to the central bank that then, you know, uh, ends up being seized by the central bank and, and sort of the rest uh, and, and being handed out to people in Lebanese Lira. This is an issue that really has come to the fore with a quarter million dollar World Bank loan, you know, that that we spoke about uh, at length, uh, I think, two podcasts ago, where we were speaking about, you know, this loan that is is uh, coming in uh, in dollars from the international community, but then uh, Supposed to be hand out in lyrics and and apparently the the thing that sort of pushed everyone over the edge is the fact that Le- Le- Lebanon's MPs were getting vaccinated while they were discussing this quarter billion loan, literally in you know in the session or or right before the session where they're discussing this massive loan that there's a lot of you know sort of controversy around. They're actually getting va- vaccinated in in violation of the national plan that was agreed to by the World Bank, and so it was literally the situation of what the fuck uh, that I think led to Saroja's outburst. And, and I think, uh, you know, since it has been backtracked a bit.
0: Yeah. I, I mean, if you're, if you're in the world bank shoes right now, it is sort of, you're in sort of a, a strange position, I, I I think for them, uh, because Hassan Hamad as well, you know, when he came out a couple of days after the scandal broke and finally broke his silence, uh, he said, part of the reasoning In addition to saying this is a nothing burger, he also said, you know, we're sovereign, we're allowed to do this. We're not under some sort of international, you know, tutelage or anything like that, which is a great line and everything. But at the same time, it's like, well, yeah, but you agreed to follow certain rules. And now you're breaking that agreement. So I'm not sure how much sovereignty really enters into the discussion right now. And so if you're uh, on the World Bank side of things, you've got a lot of things to consider. There is, uh, number one, the fact that these politicians agreed with you on one thing and then have quite clearly ignored that, right, to their own benefit, which is something that you wanted to uh, avoid in the first place, but it's happened now. So how do you respond uh, well, you have you have to think not just about Lebanon. Well, you have to think first off about you know what happens with Lebanon, as you mentioned this two hundred forty six million dollar uh, loan that they're negotiating right now. There is that. And then there is just this uh, this larger moral hazard, right? It, Lebanon is not the only country that the World Bank is giving loans to uh, in order to buy vaccines. There are three other countries, and there may be more in the future. And so if you are the World Bank, you have to think, oh, no, we really need to put in other safeguards to ensure that this doesn't happen elsewhere as well. And that could lead to certain delays in vaccines getting to people as well. So, I, I, I mean, if you were the World Bank, you don't want to cut off funding necessarily because this is a humanitarian issue. And if you do, you're you're essentially punishing the people for the problems of their government and the bad faith of their government. But then at the same time, you have the this, this these larger considerations to take uh, into account.
2: I mean, this was the dilemma that... Uh that we faced back in um, during the Thawra, during the uprising of October 17, uh, where uh, a lot of the attention, especially by the diaspora, was uh, dedicated to convincing the international community to stop giving money to Lebanon. Uh, based on the idea that they are funding and and kind of providing oxygen to the Lebanese establishment and not to the Lebanese people. But when things get, uh, when basically shit hits the fan on a, on a wide scale and poverty is increasing dramatically and all of that, then, you know, there is a sense of guilt and in, in calling for that from a social point of view, from a human point of view, you know, to say, the World Bank, to say the World Bank, stop giving money to Lebanon. At the same time, like there is no scenario that I can imagine where the Lebanese establishment allows the influx of hundreds of millions of dollars in the country without corrupting it in one way or another, without, you know, uh, making it in one way or another about sectarian clientelism or giving advantage to this or that. And with the vaccines, it's a matter of class and a matter of privilege, right? Like who's getting it first, the politicians or the people who need it, et cetera. With the poverty program, it's going to be a matter of um, who among the poor is, uh, deserves it more uh, and how that relates to their politics. But I think uh, it's a very, like, um, it's a really tricky thing to be, uh, like, it's a really tricky area because, on one hand, uh, without the government, it's very difficult to implement these programs, be it the vaccine rollout, you need the health ministry, or the poverty program, you need the social affairs ministry, and you can't totally rely on private actors such as civil society, etc. Because those two are not uh, impartial, and they don't have the same capacities. On the other hand, you're uh, basically funding the same establishment. So yeah.
0: And could I just mention here that this issue is not so, I mean, we're, we're talking about the Lebanese political class here at, as having done this, and, and that really isn't a stretch. Uh, the, the reason that we're using that term is because if you look at the affiliations of the MPs involved and add in the fact that President Aoun also was vaccinated at uh, the presidential palace in Baabda uh, last Sunday, along with a bunch of his staffers away from International Red Cross oversight, Then you see essentially every major party is implicated in this. So obviously the FPM, because Aon is the founder, and also Eli Fersli, while not a party member, is a uh, member of their bloc in parliament. They're implicated. The Amal movement had a number of MPs that got vaccinated. They're implicated,
1: as um, well as the finance minister, who was, you know, a Berri appointee.
0: Absolutely, absolutely. Even uh, so, Hezbollah didn't have any MPs. However, Hamad Hassan, the health minister, was uh, essentially appointed by them, or his name was put forward by them. So Hezbollah, as well, is implicated in this. And Hezbollah's biggest nemesis on the Lebanese political scene, the Lebanese forces, they had two MPs that were uh, one party member and one member of their political bloc in parliament uh, who received these vaccines. They're implicated as well. Probably the the, the closest thing to anyone being outside of this scandal is the future movement uh, who had uh, Mohammed Kabara, who is not a party member, but who does run on their lists and is uh, an MP for Tripoli long time, basically with the future movement, uh, He he was vaccinated, but before the dozen parliament. So for the most part, this basically cuts across the entirety of the political spectrum. It seems sort of like an agreement uh, by those in charge, like, oh, we're not going to make a big deal out of this. This is a, We want to put this behind us uh, and not use this as political. They, nobody can really use this uh, as a, a means to attack another political party because so many people are implicated. Uh, however, that doesn't mean that, that uh, parties are not attacking each other. The politics isn't happening. And we saw a really major uh, escalation of that just this weekend uh, in Bikirki.
2: Indeed, uh, one of those uh, moments where you have protesters going to Beqirke, uh, which historically aren't very many, aren't too many, and are always significant, right? Because Beqirke is not uh, is the uh, the place of the Maronite Church in Lebanon. The head of the Maronite Church, uh, the Patriarch Bashar Rai, is there, and it has a lot of symbolism in Lebanon. Uh, especially, obviously, for the Christian population, and when Kirki moves on the politics uh, with a move such as this one, as calling for people to come and demonstrate, and Kirki, this means that there is um, there is an escalation where, or there is a situation where the usual politicians can't do the job for Lebanon's Christians, so the patriarch must step up. And this is basically what's happening now, and this time the enemy or the threat is uh, basically disguised as the the whole political establishment in in Bashar al-Ra'i's discourse, but it's mostly about Hezbollah. So this protest or this demonstration was to call for a UN-sponsored international political conference for Lebanon that uh, basically does several things i will i will mention uh, quickly most important of those is to confirm that lebanon is an impartial country in regional international conflicts okay this was impartiality is the main idea that uh is pushing for but under this these slogans you have lots of uh, various like uh, components that might be problematic in other uh, ways. So, for example, he wants first to make this impartiality in the constitution, uh, right? So the constitution Lebanon would clearly state that Lebanon w- does not side with one side and another in international conflicts, which is a very weird thing to do. Uh, especially that it's uh, coming from, it, it's, it comes in a region with so many conflicts, some of which are probably m- much more polarizing than others. But uh, Lebanon being next to Palestine and being next to Syria, the idea that Lebanon would be impartial was always taken, never taken so seriously. Uh, because impartiality is usually, should be coming from outwards and inwards at the same time the second most important thing in this was that Rai said the international conference must confirm the and and impose the implementation of previous un security council the, uh, resolutions concerning lebanon obviously if you hear that that might mean uh, that you might think of many including ones that israel is violating all the time but what he means is 1559 which is the one that says that all militias that haven't uh, basically given their arms to the state after the civil war uh, have to do that now and this was passed just before Hariri's assassination, uh, Rafi Hariri's assassination, and it was targeting Hezbollah. So he, he said it and he, he basically confirmed it by saying that we need to have one army protecting Lebanon and that Hezbollah's military capacities are kind of subjugated to the army so that we have one official defense strategy. So, the, I mean, there are many other aspects of it related to Christian uh, Muslim uh, balance and all of that. Uh, uh there were weird things happening like you know supposedly this was not a partisan protest but there were so many lf flags lebanese forces flags because the main political force that was backing Ra'i and this move was the lebanese forces apart from uh, many anti-establishment people who uh, saw this as one of the last channels to voice their anger uh, uh, about the situation and also like to uh, warn about uh, the, the the blocked road that, or basically the, the cliff that that we're jumping off with the the whole Hezbollah issue. But uh, one of the one of the funny things, in my opinion, was that at some point when he was speaking, some people interrupted him with a chant, and the chant was. The people want to reform the system, <laughs> which for me was was, was quite you know um, uh, was quite uh, symbolic because uh, the discourse that Rai presents uh, and the record that Rai has is always about minor reform he's always protecting uh, maronites positions in the state uh, including riad saleme or aoun at different points or uh, you know whoever the president uh, the, uh, president is and so did the patriarchs before him so the patriarchy itself is at the heart of the sectarian system in in, in Lebanon the maronite patriarchy and has always been an ally to basically political Maronitism or um, uh, the main Maronite positions in the state regardless of the records of those people.
1: But it seems like that might be changing a bit and I think that the, the, what happened yesterday was in effect seen as as, as uh, Ar-Rai pulling Christian cover from President Aung. Uh, who who now really is in a, a position I would say of unprecedented weakness, and I think that that's tied to the position that Haun, backed by Hezbollah took a year and a half ago during the Lebanon protests. They basically made themselves the face of the system and the, the you know the the remaining uh, strongest pillar of the current system. And what we've seen is you know an unprecedented deterioration in the current country since then haun uh, and haszbollah rightly or wrongly are portrayed as as sort of being the the keepers of that system and and what we saw yesterday was in effect I think, um, you know, sort of a sign of of how weak Aoun has become. You know, he's old, he's sort of withering, and in a way is kind of a lame duck president. And, And what we see here seems to be sort of a priming for 2022, which is really, you know, being chalked up to be the pivotal year for Lebanon with municipal parliamentary and presidential elections, so the end of Aoun's term. And we expect the March 8th majority in parliament to lose that majority in the elections if they are held. And, and you know, just a small note here is that we actually got an indication this week of the types of excuses that may be used to not hold elections, which many of us fear, you know, journalists, activists uh, fear in Lebanon because we have a precedent for that in the past, you know, having gone with without elections between 2009 and 2018. So Lebanon is supposed to have by-elections, uh, four uh, seats left vacant uh, by two MPs who died from COVID and eight who resigned after the blast. But... Uh, it seems that those elections are now going to be postponed from their date in March uh, because, and this is what the interior minister said, because of COVID, because of the Tripoli security situation, because polling centers in Beirut were destroyed by the blast. And get this, because the state can't even afford the indelible ink that you use when you go into the polling booth to show that you have voted. They said in a memo that they want, <laughs> they need somebody to donate the ink to the state Uh, because they don't have it and they can't afford it.
0: Yeah. And, and this is uh, already a violation of the Constitution. When a seat in Parliament becomes vacant within two months, according to the Constitution, there should be by-elections for that to be filled. Obviously, that did not happen in the case of the eight MPs that resigned in the wake of the port explosion. Um, and it doesn't seem, I mean, if we're pushing off till May, that means that also isn't going to happen in the other two seats uh, that became vacant due to uh, COVID deaths. So, When you hear Lebanese politicians going on and on about the Lebanese Constitution and how things we have to adhere to the Constitution, keep in mind that they are not exactly consistent on this.
1: No, and they can't even afford the ink for the elections. I mean, look at where we've come as a state. You know, it's just serious failed state territory when you can't even afford the ink to hold elections, yeah. whether that's the truth or whether it's an excuse or not. And and amid all of this happening, of course, there's no sign of a government. And it appears, in fact, that the entire thing is a charade. And everyone knows it because... It seems to me that Hadiri does not want to be the prime minister of the state as it keels over. He's very happy to have Haum uh, be, be the one who sort of, you know, carries that and, and is the figurehead of Lebanon's demise. And come 2022, maybe things will change. And it seems that everybody knows it's a farce. I, I recently spoke to a diplomat who told me literally that, that it's a, quote, farce, and it's a circus. And And in this situation, uh, the international donors who continue to sort of, you know, prop up in some way this system and provide tiny meager aid to people, they're even saying that they don't want to do this anymore. And so we might even see those meager flows of aid reduced. Um, and and so really we we really are in the situation of of the of the Titanic where where it's like, you know, that where it's bow is in the air and it's about to snap in half. And while all of this is happening and everything is falling apart and we have complete a lack of accountability from anyone at the top of the government or the state for the terrible situation we're in, we have protesters from Tripoli being tried for terrorism uh, at the military court in Beirut. And so this is an issue that's sort of unfolded over the past month when, when people were arrested following the protests and, and riots in Tripoli. Uh, that that were sort of over the deteriorating economic situation during the COVID lockdown, and what we've seen is that we we've had we've had several dozen people who have been detained for almost a month now, and they're being accused of terrorism. They they're charged with terrorism charges that could potentially carry the death sentence in Lebanon, even though it's not implemented. And this is sort of being seen as as really a a pivotal moment because it's the first time since Lebanon's uprising that began 18 months ago that any one of the protesters has been charged with terrorism. You know, terrorism usually reserved for people who fight with ISIS or, you know, people who fight with various groups or, you know, organize uh, attacks against the state. Um, and now we have protesters being charged with terrorism, and the the simple response of the families of these protesters is they're not, you know, my son is not the terrorist. The people in charge of this country are the terrorists.
2: And this is only enabled, like the whole terrorism thing, is only enabled by this scapegoating of Tripoli's people for many many years now. Ever, you know, at least since 2013, as being uh, prone to be radicalized or prone to be uh, or his or Tripoli being. Uh, what do you call it? Fertile ground for, for uh, Sunni terrorism in Lebanon. This stigma has been kind of imposed on Tripoli and uh, remains in the background. So that's kind of why they, uh, this is what enables them to, when it enables the judiciary to be so outrageous in its, uh, in its, uh, in its behavior and like prosecute uh, young protesters as terrorists.
0: Okay, I think we're going to have to leave it there at this point. uh is going to leave us, and we're going to bring in Lydia Aswad to talk about inequality. Lydia, welcome to the show. Uh, th- this has been a very long time in the making. We we've been talking about getting you on the show for I think almost a year now. So we're very very excited to have you.
3: <laughs> yes, me too. I'm very happy to be here. Thank you very much for having me.
0: Can you tell us uh, just a little bit about yourself, your background, and what you uh, research?
3: Yes, sure. So. I'm a PhD candidate at the Paris School of Economics in France and also a research fellow at the World Inequality Lab, which is specializing in uh, measuring, creating data on income and wealth inequality from many countries in the world and, and many different time periods. Uh, and it, uh, it's a lab uh, founded by so, um, uh, Thomas Piketty, Gabriel Zucman, Emmanuel Seiz, um, among others
0: and And so I, I think it's very important to set the stage uh, for this discussion. Uh, we obviously, we know that there are certain things that are problematic in the Lebanese system. um, but i I don't think that a lot of us quite grasp just how unequal the system in Lebanon is. Uh, can can you walk us through? what your research shows about Lebanon and the inequality that exists here.
3: So yes, as part of my research, I've managed to get access to new microfiscal data from the Lebanese Ministry of Finance for the 2005 and 2014 period. And fiscal data are key um, to measure the entire income distribution in any country. The, the, the entire methodology of the World Inequality Lab is based on this. And when I did this, when I estimated the the distribution of income for Lebanon, uh, I found really striking results that uh, income is extremely concentrated in Lebanon. So basically, to give you a few uh, statistics, I found that the top 10 percent richest individuals earned almost 55 percent of total national uh, income over the period. And that the top 1% uh, richest uh, earned almost a quarter of the total national income of the country. So to give some perspective, in France, uh, the top 1% gained uh, approximately 11% of the total national income. And in the US, where we are constantly speaking about inequality, uh, the top 1% uh, earned less than 25% of the total national income. So, so really, Lebanon is like um, extremely unequal. So when we know that the riches earn that much, it also means, in the case of Lebanon, that the poorest half of the population uh, received very little. So uh, approximately 10% of the total national income. And the middle 40% of the distribution, which broadly corresponds to the, the middle class, uh, received... 35% of total national income. So we really have in Lebanon an extremely polarized social structure with like most of the resources going to the richest and nothing is left to the poorest. And the middle class is basically shrinking. And this is for the 2005 and 2014 period. So even before the crisis that the country is experiencing right now.
2: And that's not only like uh, high when you look at like a society in isolation, but also comparatively, right, to other societies. Like uh, before, we, when we were discussing this before the episode, you were telling us that it was uh, one of the most unequal countries in the world. How does it compare to, to countries that are known for inequality?
3: Yes. So, so really those figures like make Lebanon comparable to countries such as Brazil or South Africa that are extremely unequal. And it's really striking because there, like the the extreme levels of inequalities, are largely explained by the the strong persistence of racial privileges. And so, so Lebanon has levels of inequality as high as South Africa, for example. So, so it's really extreme. And basically, in the the World Inequality Lab, we consider that Lebanon, as uh, other like um, Middle Eastern countries, represent sort of a what we call an inequality frontier that is like systems that produce the highest level of inequalities in the world like it's complicated to imagine a system that can produce even a higher concentration of economic resources so Oof. yeah <laughs> <laughs> yeah uh,
0: okay so so you you you've explained you know why income or you you've explained that income inequality is is extreme even you know on on this sort of gr- on the grandest scale possible this is extreme income inequality but why? Why is it that 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 we're at this point? What What are the factors that made that got got us to where we are now?
3: Yeah. So, so I think, like, to answer you, like, in one sentence, there is one observation that we can make is that those richest groups I was talking about really coincide with the ruling elites. And for an example, the, the billionaires, like the seven billionaires uh, uh, in Lebanon, are. Politicians are clearly affiliated with some uh, political parties, so it really shows that the causes of uh, this concentration of resources are not only economic, but really also political. And I really do believe that it's the entire political economy of the country that contributes to it, and and that the the, the causes are really systemic, and that the system is is really rotten in this regard. And and basically, so one first. Source is really institutional, and we can track it back to the Taif agreements of uh, 1989 that sealed the the end of the civil war, but which also re established the Lebanese um, consociational, sorry, for the French accent democracy, which basically seems good at first. Like when we look at it first, like it's a political regime that ensures that each religious group is represented in the government and in national institutions, and that everyone can influence policy in order to prevent conflicts and civil wars. So it seems attractive, but uh, in practice, and as in other countries with um, similar political arrangements, uh, it has many perverse effects, and uh, and is associated with really bad governance uh, outcome, uh, because basically it enables the creation of uh, what you can call a party cartel, which um, recent research by uh, Christiana Pereira, for example, has really well uh, described. And it's basically a political arrangement where you, you have representatives from different parties and which are ideologically opposed that constitutes the national unity governments for an example we've seen in Lebanon since 2005 that have to share power and such arrangements basically do not manage to implement cohesive policies consistent policies for the common good because they they, they disagree basically
2: exactly and and one of the things that we 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 always say when we're talking about the Lebanese system is that the way that uh, power is distributed, as you're saying, it kind of eclipses all the divisions within sectarian communities at the uh, in favor of the divisions between sectarian communities. So when you have like politicians who are uh, Sunni leading the sect uh, more or less politically... And accumulating as much resources as possible from this process, as was the case with uh, with, with many uh, families, uh, most notably maybe the Hariri family. And you have this division between uh, the Sunnis as a whole, as a political entity more or less, and the Shia or the Druze, etc. And you mm-hmm. have this case in every one of those then the interests of people at the bottom of all of these uh, sects you know the working classes the poor uh, among all of these sects are hidden are b- b- hidden behind uh, this illusion that they are all of all of them are uh, you know part of one group that has one political interest so uh, the worker who is uh, uh, driving uh, you know delivering food and the billionaires from the same sect supposedly have some interest that is common among them uh, as opposed to the delivery driver and his uh, colleague from uh, another one
3: yes exactly
2: So I agree with you that this system, it's not only like at the level of uh, political symbolism and uh, political polarization, but when when this exists, then accountability is much harder to achieve. And accountability is basically at the source of most of of the problems uh, that we talk about in this podcast. Just before you join us, we were talking about many issues and accountability and the lack of accountability is always at the center of it. Actually, the previous episode was dedicated to this topic. But in this context, in the economic context, uh, this, you know, uh, supposed homogeneity within each class and uh, the the sectarian power sharing system that we're talking about and the lack of accountability have taken uh, taken us to a place that we compare to a country like South Africa, which has a history of racist apartheid and basically the whites concentrating all the resources among them, uh, which, you know, historically explains inequality in a much more logical way than... Than the case of Lebanon and uh, Le- the Lebanese society, so uh, it's it's uh, really fascinating how little is spoken of this issue, although we are now you know, doing as as bad as possible in this in this sphere.
3: Exactly, like in the, the Lebanese case, it's much more tri- trickier, like mechanisms, etc., like less direct than the the apartheid in uh, in South Africa, but with really similar like results. And you really said two like key things. Uh, I think that are consequences of the, the sectarianism is that those particular cartel I was telling you about, like they managed to agree at least on one thing, is to stay in power. And to create barriers of entry so that there are no new political, uh, actors that can enter. And this, like, prevents any accountability. So then they can basically pass all laws and policies that favor their interests. And the second thing that is also, like, a bit, uh, trickier as a mechanism or is that basically this sectarianism, like, it's Crystallizes and institutionalizes uh, sects and religious identity. And we, we see, like, we all know it, like, uh, sectarianism enters in every aspect of life in Lebanon. And basically, it creates citizens that identify more with their sects than their class, which also encourages clientelism. And the political elites have really strong incentives to, to maintain and strengthen these identities that allow them to favor financial and economic arrangements within their sects and to control their respective region. And then they can amplify the rent they extract from the financial and real estate sectors, that are the, the key sectors in the Lebanese economy. And, and basically, in exchange of this, they just provide to their communities basic public goods, such as jobs, reduction in school fees. And even if Lebanese probably know these schemes, they, like did not overthrow the system because in the absence of the state, you you prefer to have public goods provided by wealthy politicians from your sect than having nothing at all. So this really creates a vicious circles that enrich like the, the, the political elite. Due to this rentier economy, the absence of the state, that creates extreme level of inequality, which increase the reliance of the public on the services provided by those groups. And after, like, uh, maintain them in power, etc. That's how it's explosive and creates huge inequality, basically.
2: Yes, indeed. I mean, on one hand, you have this political system that drives up inequality. And uh, on the other hand, you have economic policies, especially in the last 30 years after the end of the civil war in Lebanon, that might have contributed significantly to the inequality that we have today. And when you talk about the power, share, sectarian power sharing, we're mainly talking about rent-seeking activities that that the politicians are are exploiting the system to extract. And when you talk about economic policy making, we also see that the whole economy has been pushed towards rent-based sectors after the civil war, especially real estate and uh, and banking, at the expense of productive sectors that the the, the Lebanese economy had relied on more in the past, uh, such as agriculture and industry. And uh, the data after the civil war show that and this were not you know accidents or like unfortunate events or uh, the results of uh, um, other countries you know shining in industrial sectors or whatever other excuses that people usually give for this this was the result of policies related to monetary policies and economic policies and trade policies that lebanon adopted after the civil war which said okay lebanon is not a productive country and we shouldn't hope to be we should just focus on creating this. Uh, the, the main idea was creating this this country with a capital, Beirut, that attracts everyone uh, to come in as tourists, but also bring in their money, put their deposits in Lebanon. And uh, basically, uh, it, it, a, part, a ma- major part of that was for the Gulf countries to recycle a lot of their petrodollars in Lebanon uh, on their way out to Europe or, uh, or other places. And this was basically at the heart of it. And that's why you see uh, so many different scenes in Lebanon, and like in high proximity to each other. Like you go to downtown, and you see the most, you know, luxurious buildings and the most luxurious brands that are clearly made tailored for tourists, more than locals. And you see a, a, a banking system, a financial system that is now collapsing, but you know, used to survive on these uh, foreign funds for so long. At the same time, you see uh, the slums, you see 60% uh, poverty rate, etc.
0: Yeah, and those those very rich areas of downtown, are they full or empty? Well, they are, they're empty, right? Uh, and so you can see how the system was basically engineered to do this one thing and it really failed at doing that. It did not attract the kind of money that it, it needed to, to be on a sustainable basis. And now we have... You know, this massive, these sectors that you talked about, the financial sector, the real estate sector, are just in absolute crisis now.
2: Exactly. And when we go talk about the tax system, uh, we will see how this is also reflected in taxation. So the tax system itself has had a role in exacerbating inequality. Can you explain to us, Lydia, based on your research, how uh, you see that this might have happened?
3: Yes, like exactly. Like um, the tax laws were part of all the laws. Uh, decided at that time that contributed to the this rent, uh, rentier economy that you just described. And basically, the, the only like uh, motivation of everything that all laws that were passed was just like short-term rent seeking, uh, which contributed to what you just described. And one aspect of it was just to create a tax system that is super pro-rich, basically. And, uh, the consequence is that Lebanon really has a very uh, low, like a tax system that collects very low fiscal revenues. So to give you some like, figures, uh, the tax revenues in Lebanon is equal to 15% of its GDP, so growth uh, domestic product uh, in 2018, which is similar to uh, the tax revenues of Senegal or, or Costa Rica, for an example. And it's lower to the average of uh, most developing regions, including uh, sub saharan African countries, but the average is 17%. So really, like, Lebanon does not collect much uh, fiscal revenue. And basically, this means that the country is unable to finance social policies and deliver basic uh, public goods. And to come back to what uh, we said earlier, this explains why, like, the, the margin of maneuvers sectarian leaders have, like, you have no state, no fiscal revenue, no national public policies. So then... If you give just a little bit of uh, social policies like you attract like um, support from voters. Uh, so first, no fiscal revenues. Second, within this small tax system, most of it um, most of the revenues comes from indirect taxation, which is taxes that do not depend on the income of individual. So those are mostly consumption taxes, so the value-added taxes. And those are regressive. It means that as it does not depend on the income of the individual, it's like proportional, no matter what you, you buy, uh, the rich pays as much as the poor, but for the poor, it's like a way higher share of their total income. And uh, in Lebanon, the, the, the indirect taxes represents almost 60 percent of all uh, revenues. So it's uh, extremely high. A third characteristic of the fiscal system is that only 11% of the tax revenues is collected through a progressive scheme. That is, um, that uh, the richer pay more than the poorest. The more income you have, the more you pay. And even this progressive scheme on income is based on a very archaic old system that taxes, Uh, every income source separately. So if you, for an example, you are a rentier, you own uh, like two apartments and you rent one, but you also receive, uh, you are also an employee and receive income from this job. For the tax um, administration, you appear twice as the rentier and you pay tax on the rent you, you gain and as an income earner you are not taxed on the total income you earn so basically you are not taxed according to the real rank you you have in the total income distribution basically like the richest which often have several sources of income are favored by this system
2: exactly which goes against the point of progressive taxation in the first place right because Usually, uh, uh, progressive taxation stands on the basis that you know how much money each person is making and that's how you tax them so that it's fair for society. But if a rich person has five sources of income and they're all pretty minimal uh, look, or pretty you know normal looked at separately uh, and then the tax rates they're going to pay on each of them will be lower than if they had one uh, one number or a global tax that they're paying.
3: Exactly. And add on top of that, the fact that the progressive rates are really low in Lebanon compared to the rest of the world. So recently, it was increased to 25% for the top marginal tax rates, which are the rates that the richest are paying. But this is still way lower than most countries of the world. So developed like rich uh, countries such as uh, France, the US, but also um con- uh, Similar countries, developing countries, really, Lebanon really has low tax rates compared to the rest of the world. And also another like particularity of the of the uh, direct taxation in the country is that most capital incomes are either not taxed. There are so many exemptions and rules by which you can basically avoid paying taxes on capital income. And most of them are not taxed under a progressive scheme, but with a flat rate, so a proportional rate, which is uh, really in favor of the richest.
0: And it, it's really striking going through uh, you know, going through this list of the, of the way that the, the tax system is engineered, uh, because you know I go back to maybe you know two or three years ago when there were all of these big budget battles, right? And how the you know the Lebanese state was always you know had was always running these deficits, uh, which caused all of this mounting debt, which Lebanon has now defaulted on. But back then, all of this discussion you know in, at around the Cedra conference and everything like that, the conversation about fixing the deficit was almost entirely focused on what can we cut and problems in state spending. Rather than, I mean, there was a there was a bit on the tax side of things, but really it was sort of around the edges. They were only talking about you know doing a global. Let's consider everybody's income as one. There, there really was no you know bold proposals for really upending the system at all. Rather, the focus was on why are we paying you know more state employees than we should? Why are the budgets this big for spending? You know, so it it really goes to show how the narrative was controlled uh, and and what people were focused on of as potential solutions
3: yeah completely inappropriate like uh, especially recently like all the budget reforms that were passed or discussed uh, the choice of austerity was completely like next to the what was really needed and it's, it's almost fascinating like, with the whatsapp tax you really think like what what were they expecting like they were really pushing and keeping doing reforms for more austerity so basically making the poorest pay more until when would have like it's really surprising that how long they kept pushing (laughs) for people to pay more and on the contrary making the system like uh easier for for the richest like it's uh, yeah almost naive um, yeah, it's,
2: it's surreal, it's surreal. When the WhatsApp tax was, it, it wasn't officially enacted, but it was approved by government. I was in real shock first, because it was the most regressive tax that I've ever heard of, because <laughs> poor, poor people in Lebanon use WhatsApp more than rich people, because before the crisis, at least the cost of the telecommunications in Lebanon, relative to salaries and the exchange rate, etc., was one of the highest uh, worldwide. So it's not a country where you can just call up someone and you have unlimited minutes, etc. It's a uh, it's very diff- it's very uh, expensive to use a normal phone line. So everyone resorted to WhatsApp, and telecom companies here like facilitated the process by making WhatsApp like having a special subscription for WhatsApp, so that every like everyone can use WhatsApp. Uh, for their daily business activities, for the communications with family, etc. And to impose a tax on that, so hitting the poorest the most is absolutely insane. I mean, it's it's insane because it's surreal and because it's against WhatsApp's rules and because it's never heard of. But you know, our reliance on VAT, on TVA, uh, as you were saying before, on rela- our reliance on uh, regressive taxation is quite similar. So much VAT on all of these different products you're buying that are not, Considered essential products exempted from VAT, uh, which is basically most things we buy in life. And when you think about the percentage that this is taking out of poor people's money compared to rich people's money, it's much more, right? Because poor people are are much more uh, like the, the, the what they can do with their disposable income, with the money they actually have to spend is much less. So they focus on necessary things such as, you know, buying the basic uh, items uh, and food, etc., clothes, etc., And all of these have VAT and the VAT uh, was even recently increased to 11% while, you know, rich people have so much money to save and this money that they are saving, they are not paying this tax on.
0: Now, and, and I just want to point out really quickly that this is not just like a problem with Lebanese politicians, the focus on austerity, the focus on you know increasing VAT—that's come largely from abroad, from inter- from the international community. So it really is. I mean, this is not just like a problem of Lebanon's own making. Also, the potential solutions to you know budgetary crisis and stuff like that. The outside actors were pushing Lebanon towards, you know, further towards the cliff here by uh, proposing that austerity be the answer rather than any sort of fundamental reform uh, that would address these deep inequalities uh, that we see in society here.
3: Yes, exactly. And again, it was really like not knowing the Lebanese context because as Nizar just said, like the tax base is so large. You have so many rich Uh, people in Lebanon, like only if you look at the seven billionaires so only seven individuals a bit more with their family like their net worth on average since 2010 represents almost 30 percent of the total national income so in france for an example it's like all billionaires and there are much there are maybe more than seven France, um their worth is less than 10 percent of the national income So it's really insane when you know the context and when you know how large the tax base is and how many rich people and like their weight, like to make the choice of directing uh, all the weight on the the poor. It's really inappropriate.
2: Exactly. And uh, I mean, I agree with that. And uh, when you look at the specificities of of the Lebanese tax system, uh, it's not only discrimination against the poor, it's also discrimination against the productive sectors that we are talking about. So we mentioned the renterization of the economy or the focus on rent based sectors. When you look at the tax system, even today, after the um, recent amendments in response to the fiscal crisis and all of that. And I think I mentioned this in a previous podcast. So if you're a, a, a productive company, for example, producing Lebne and Germany and you know, things that are um, uh, that are real and have real value in the market uh, in, uh, in Lebanon and you employ like 10 workers and you make uh, uh, $150,000 a year or more, then you are subjected to the highest bracket in the, in the taxes and that we have, which is 25%. And this is on, uh, regardless of exchange rate, right? 225 million Lebanese pounds, uh, it's not in dollars, of course. So if it's a small company, if a small company like this one, and now because of the exchange rate, it's a much smaller company that makes 225 million uh, uh, Lebanese pounds in a year, uh, has to pay 25%. Then you would expect, for example, a bank that uh, makes 4,000 times more And 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 revenues or even net profits like Lombank or Bank Audi etc. To be paying more in taxes, and then you look at the tax uh, that the banks pay and all financial companies, and it's a flat tax at 17 percent as you were saying. So basically, you pay 8 percent more in taxes if you are in the productive sectors that the politicians pretend to be supportive of. And that you are producing something that people need to, you know, eat and live. And you are employing people uh, relative to your capital. You are employing more people than the bank and all of those great things in economic terms. And still, you are paying 8% more than someone who makes thousands of times more in profits.
3: Yeah, it's so key what you just said. Like, and on top of this, like, um, the tax system enables the richest to avoid or evade taxation even more. So basically, for an example, like now the the way the tax system works with e-taxation makes that in the formal sector taxes on wages are um, easily collected and there, like therefore uh, small and middle productive companies uh, pay more social security contribution and uh, taxes on the employees they have so they're really taxed heavily by by the government whereas some banks and like larger companies have much uh, like higher ways to evade and not be taxed and so, you really have a system where, especially like, like 10 years ago or 20 years ago, where like to create a company, to hire people, to be productive was much more costly than actually to invest in rent seeking activity and in the real estate sector and not produce everything, which like doomed the economy and, and led to the crisis we, we see today.
0: Okay. So, if, if we know what went wrong, and and where the policies failed us in the past, what are some of the solutions that are feasible or that should be done to fix this problem?
3: So, like one optimistic thing that I, I can say when you look at the tax system today, there is a big margin of maneuver for Lebanon. So, <laughs> the tax system is so bad and so like uh, under the standards uh, of the rest of the world, etc. So, so just like, pushing Lebanon to the average of what is done in other countries could really help increase both revenues, but also uh, improve the fairness of the system. And in particular, like, uh, there are four four main things, I think, that can be done and could really, like, uh, help with uh, dealing with social justice, which is what we said, like, to create first a general income tax, which taxes all income sources together, and at a progressive rate. So which is not the case now, now, as we said, like the sources are taxed separately. And this should include more capital income. So all the capital incomes, dividends, interest, capital gains that are taxed now at flat rates should be included in this uh, general income tax. We should simplify the law with less exemptions, etc., and increase the top marginal tax rates, which I was like, uh, as I was saying, are super low compared to the, the rest of the world. And second, I think uh, it's time to think about, like, wealth taxation. So first, like, what would be really needed is to do an exceptional wealth tax. Um, as we've seen, for example, in Argentina recently, like, to help deal with the COVID crisis and all the, the other crises in, uh, in the country. And, for example, if we only put, like, 10% on the billionaire's wealth, could almost have three percent of the national income like to give you order of magnitude which means that if we also reach multi-millionaires etc this could yield uh, more revenues but also i think it's a time to think of Implementing and establishing a more comprehensive and progressive wealth tax, given like the, for example, the the booming real estate sectors and the, the fact that the economy is based on like uh, real estate and uh, financial activities, so there is also a tax base there. And finally. Like, this should be complemented with a lot of laws to fight tax evasion, which is the national sport uh, in Lebanon. And all this could, like, really raise more revenues that are urgently, uh, urgently needed now and uh, really deal with uh, inequality that are extreme uh, in the countries, as we we said.
0: These all sound like really just basic, straightforward solutions very simple but obviously that <laughs> the devil is in the details and the devil is actually in getting a, a system on board that you know this the these sorts of solutions I mean you mention a wealth tax to anybody who is wealthy and they recoil in horror and unfortunately here if we were to if Lebanese politicians wanted to implement such a thing, they would essentially be going against their own interests though, right?
3: Yes. So obviously that's, um, as I said, the causes of the system are political and I believe that the the answer must be political. And as we said, like, it's the entire system that is rotten that contributes to all this accumulation of wealth in the hands of a, a minority. So this won't uh, change if there is not like a a political and drastic and radical reform of the current system, uh, which must be decided collectively and democratically. So, so all this is really conditional on having a political transition that uh, put uh, like uh, in power people that would agree to, to pass such laws. And this is of course open, like it's an open question, but then I think that the fiscal reforms could be like really straightforward, simple bullet points of a new economic model that is really needed uh, in the country right now, but conditional on a a political uh, transition, which stays like uncertain right now.
2: I think, you know, uh, the discussions about taxes and inequality, I like them, um, not because I'm a nerd about it, but also because like it's just it reveals to us how political the whole thing is. You know, it's not only a Lebanon. Taxes, and inequality, and economic policy in general is is political. is highly political, and it represents which political interests and which class interests um, are dominant in society. So, when we're diagnosing the problem, we will we will have to touch on politics. And we were thinking when we were thinking of the solutions just now, what is feasible, what might be done we have to think oh okay who is doing that you know uh, are uh, people like riad salemi and uh, and uh, saad hariri and these people who are uh, who have you know have the most influence maybe on on economic and uh, monetary policy making in Lebanon going to ever lead a policy effort uh, with these kind of reforms it's just not going to happen right because it's as you were as you're just saying uh, lydia it goes against their interests so Uh, This is what what fascinates me is that till today, even after the October 17th revolution, even after what is happening today in Lebanon, there are some people that still, uh, uh, for for some reason, still believe that a technocratic solution of some sort is viable or that say, you know, uh, all we need is better people with competence or skills uh, to implement the right policies, scientifically correct policies for Lebanon. And what they ignore is that it's really all of it. Is about interests and political interests and class interests, and that when you have the right interests uh, represented in power, then you will definitely find the experts to do it.
3: Yes, I mean, one possible way out would be like if there is, but we are far from it, but more international coordination on, for example, uh, transparency um, uh, on financial assets, uh, tax coordination, etc. So there are like, um, there are some hope. There is a fascinating research by um, Juliana Londonio Velez on the Colombian case, and she shows that okay, like so, Colombia tried to to put a, a wealth tax, and indeed the wealthiest found new ways to evade. Like it was imperfect, but because for um, because there was some also a risk of detection of such fraud and avoidance due to the Panama Papers leak. It was actually a bit efficient and it shows that with perhaps better enforcement. So coming from within or like from international coordination, wealth tax can like complement, um, like can really work and increase progressivity and raise more revenues. So a way would be to, to see if there is like some international coordination on, on transparency and taxation. Um, but for sure, uh, Taxes are centered to building a new state. Uh, so it seems like it's not sexy or glamorous taxation, but actually it's like a key aspect of any thought of a state. Like a state cannot be stable if it cannot tax its citizens and its richest citizens in particular. And um, and a healthy tax system is key to have a sustainable like social contract right now. So yes, I don't know how the the power or the will can come from within Lebanon right now but uh but I do believe like it's important and can be done.
0: So don't let anyone tell you that tax policy is boring or not connected from reality or anything. Tax policy is fucking at the center of everything. It yeah. it ties together all of these disparate interests uh into uh, you know it tells a story of of where we're at and it it, it really does um paint the picture, uh, you know, of, of where this inequality came from and how we could possibly fix it and how there could be a more just society, more equal society at some point in the future if the will is there to change taxes and tax policy, right?
3: Yeah, exactly. Like if you want to think of state and politics, you have to think about taxation. You said it super well. <laughs>
0: I, I think we have to leave it right there. Lydia, thank you so much for, for joining us. This was a fascinating discussion. <laughs> probably the episode ran a little bit longer than, than we thought. And I, I mean, honestly, we could probably bring you on for like two or three more episodes. Uh, but thank you so much for taking the time to explain all of this to us. And And hopefully we'll we'll see some positive change from all of this at some point in the
2: future.
3: Yes, hopefully. And thank you so much for having me. It was great uh, to be here and uh, to be featured in your podcast.
2: Thank you so much for coming, Lydia. Um, I enjoyed the episode as well. Thank you um, for listening. Our listeners, we're not going to be back next week. Uh, Next week, there's no podcast, but the week after. So tune in and maybe listen to some previous episodes uh, during the next week. Until then, I'm Nizar Hassan.
0: I'm Benjamin Redd.
3: And I'm Lydia Aswad.
2: And this was the Lebanese Politics Podcast. The Lebanese Politics Podcast is brought to you by myself, Nizar Hassan, Benjamin Red. Produced behind the scenes by Susan Wilson, and the music is by Omar Alfil.